So today we'll be doing Ephesians uh, 1 verse 3 and then the, the other references in Ephesians to the heavenlies are listed out there. Uh, so that gives you an idea of where we're going. Ephesians 1.20, Ephesians 2.6, Ephesians 3.10, and Ephesians 6.12 all mention the heavenlies. Uh, so that's that's where we're going. Uh, we'll return to John's gospel after this. Um, if you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, you can find the passage we're in in page 633. If you don't have one of the church Bibles and you're just flipping through trying to find it, just remember Gentiles eat pork chops. And that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So other people use General Electric Power Company, but I like Gentiles eat pork chops. So nine evangelical churches in State College are all doing this together at pretty much the same time. Uh, the pastors have been meeting together to trade notes and encourage each other through this epistle. And it's a real highlight in terms of our pastors' meetings. Uh, they look forward to this, and they're trusting, well, we're all trusting God to build greater unity among the churches in the State College area who know Christ and trust his word. Today I want to introduce this uh, series here at Grace Fellowship by talking about uh, the context, the model, and the point. If you look at your outline, that's your outline. The context, the model, and the point. Now by the context, I mean the situation in which this epistle was written. It's difficult to understand anything without knowing the context. Most misinterpretations start with a failure to understand the factors that influence the author and his audience. So we need to know about the context. By the model, I mean that pattern by which we understand things. Nobody does well with random facts. You know, they just hand you a list of random facts, memorize this, we'll test you on it in five minutes. Ah! Um, We understand things by patterns. And... uh, These patterns are very common. Examples would be metaphors, comparisons, contrasts, poetries, alliterations, lists, stories, etc. The the five references in Ephesians to the heavenlies are such a pattern. The heavenlies is an unusual term, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. We'll look back on that. And finally, by the point, I mean, what effect Paul meant to have on us. What difference will all this make? So that's where we're going, the context, the model, and the point. So first, the context. In Acts chapter 19, Paul ministers in Ephesus, following Priscilla and Aquila, a couple of his co-workers, on the outward leg of his last journey. It's a fascinating story what God did there in Ephesians. I would encourage you to read Acts 19 and 20 to get up to speed on that. He says that he spent three years there teaching day and night. Okay, you can cover a lot of stuff in three years. If you don't take summers off, you can get a college degree in three years. This is a lot of stuff. God did wonderful things during that time, deeply impacting the whole city. Ephesus had a large stadium, 
And one of the main businesses was the production of idols. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like State College, right? We have a very large stadium. One of our main businesses is the production of athletic and academic idols. Yeah, the more things change, the the more they stay the same. So very relevant to where we are. And then in Acts 20, Paul traveled all the way through, from Ephesus, all the way through Macedonia and Greece, and then he returned back through Asia to Jerusalem. Uh, If you remember, Asia was not at this time the name of that giant continent out there. Asia was just the name of the western part of what we call today Asia Minor. So it was just the, the eastern shore of the Ionian Sea. So while in Asia, he spoke with the Ephesian elders, giving us some insight into his perspective uh, close to when he wrote this epistle. He was clearly anticipating his imprisonment, afflictions, and martyrdom. He knew he would never see them again. Clearly, this epistle was a kind of last will and testament from Paul to them and hence to us. He particularly warned them about false teachers uh, arising within the church and about the divisions uh, that that might cause. He urged them and hence us to be on guard against this. Ephesians was probably written about 60 AD. Its main point is God's plan to unite all things under Christ. And I got a whole list of references here. And if you want a bunch of numbers and random facts to memorize, I could read them to you and then you could read them back to me, right? So read Ephesians and notice all the places where it talks about God's plan to unite all things under Christ. Some today call this uh, racial reconciliation. And certainly, that's a part of it. But it's only a limited part of it. Divisions are so normal in our lives, we hardly notice them. Yet they are disastrous. We are divided from each other in all our relationships. We are divided within ourselves. And worst of all, we are divided from God. Amazingly, wonderfully, the good news of Jesus is the solution to all these divisions and separations. Jesus prays the, for the healing of these divisions in John chapter 17. He says our reconciliation with each other will be the key sign that the world, by which the world will know the truth of the gospel. I'm going to read this little quote here. You can put Bill Drips as the source of this one. But I'm not the, I didn't originate the idea. In the long, sad history of man on this planet, many have noted the prevalence of man's inhumanity to man. Humans are so proud, yet we should be ashamed to be called human because the record is so bad. People even use the Prince of Peace to excuse their wrongdoing. In spite of all this, there have been glimpses of real peace. This is almost always the effect of the gospel. That phrase, man's inhumanity to man, is is actually a, a fairly common phrase that, that people in more academic intellectual circles will use. 
And yet it is the theme of history. The other theme of history is God's intervention uh, to redeem man from the mess he's gotten himself into. All of this inhumanity that we see in man is a result of these divisions caused by our rebellion against God. So that's the context. A lot of similarity between what was happening in Ephesus and what's happening in our lives today here in State College. Let's go on to the model. Things outside of our normal experience are very difficult for us to understand. This is a bit challenging when we talk about God because he's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. How many of you have much experience with omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence? Yeah, in our dreams, right? People that believe that they're omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, we lock them up somewhere to keep keep us safe from them. <laughs> um, he is God is very, very far outside of our experience. Omniscient. He knows everything. The largest, fastest supercomputers are pitifully slow compared to him. He knows what we are going to say before we even think it. Now, that's scary. But he has, he has that knowledge that is just wildly beyond anything that, that we're familiar with. Omnipotent. He can do anything. There's a song that's taken from um, uh, Jeremiah 32:17, where it talks about nothing is too hard for thee. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. <clears throat> and he's omni- omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. How in the world could we ever comprehend a being so beyond us? We are always limited. So he chose to limit himself to human terms so that we could understand him. And that really is the essence of the incarnation. It's the essence of Christ coming as a man. That he had to dial it way back to get it down into our range. Um, so it's, it's like the, uh, the, the, um, <laughs> it, it's like when the, uh, the space shuttle, when they used to have that, would take off. One of the most astonishing things about it is that the engine was so powerful that they had to throttle it back when they were first taking off to avoid killing the, the astronauts. Now that's, <laughs> that's power, right? God had to dial his power way back for us to understand him. We can barely understand Superman. He's faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to eat tall buildings in a single bound. Now, it helps that he has that weakness, right? You remember that kryptonite? You know, but we can at least do some things, right? We can fire a speeding bullet. We're more powerful than a toy train. (laughs) We're able to leap a doghouse with a running start and a pole. Yeah. And so... Where God is, is well beyond where we are. And yet that's what the, the essential issue we're trying to deal with here is understanding him. So when Paul wants us to understand ultimate reality, he tells us what, like, what things are like in the heavenlies. 
Now, sometimes this is translated the heavenly realms or heavenly places. What he means by the heavenlies is not a location like State College or Belfont. What he means by the heavenlies is in God's presence. He wants us to understand how God sees things because that's how things really are. Where is God? Anybody want to make a guess as where God is? Yeah, he's everywhere. I remember when the first uh, Russian astronaut was launched into space and came back, one of the big quotes that he had when he got back on Earth is, yep, there is no God, I was up there, he's not there. <laughs> All the while he's saying that, his very ability to speak is being sustained by the God he denies. His, his ability to say that is, a, is an example of God's incredible mercy. So where is God? Everywhere. Where are the heavenlies? Also, everywhere. A better question would be, what are the heavenlies? And they are the presence of God all around us, all the time. It's what's really true. Imagine uh, you're training for a cross-country race, and the coach calls you over for a talk. And he says, um, listen, uh, I've studied your performance over the years. I've had you on the test machines, on the treadmills. We've measured everything about you, and we've modeled it on the computer, and we know what you can do. Now, this next cross-country race that you're going to be in has a long hill near the finish. And that hill kills everybody. It's a long hill. And you're going to get to the bottom of that hill, and you're going to feel like, oh, this is impossible. You're going to look up that hill, and you're going to say, no way. Now, I have modeled this on the computer, and it's going to be tough. But you do have the capacity to make it up that hill without slowing down. You do have it. I can show you the computer charts. I got it all right here. Okay, so you're out there in this race, and you're motoring right along. You're kind of running along with the whole pack. And you get to this hill, and you think, oh, my goodness, the coach was right. That hill's impossible. And you notice everybody's starting to dial it back, right, because they're worried that they're gonna not going to be able to make it. They want something left for when they get to the top of this hill. What do you do? hey, <laughs> hey. You know that you're going to have enough left to get up there. So you maintain your pace, right? And you start getting out in front of everybody, and you're getting up to the top, and it's getting really hard, and you say, no, we're almost there. i got enough. I can do it. And you come over the top, and there is the finish line, and you got it. What was the difference that happened in that illustration? Did you get rocket, jet-assisted roller skates? Did gravity get reversed in a kind of a temporal, local phenomena? What happened? You believed you could do it. And, of course, it was also important that you actually could. But you believed in a reality, and everybody else in that race was fooled by the appearance. And that's much the situation we're dealing with. This is what Paul is trying to do for us by showing us what is really true before God. Now, who here believes in germs? 
Anybody here believe in germs? Okay, most of you believe in germs. That's that's good. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you make me nervous. <laughs> now, who has seen a germ with their naked eye? Anybody raise your hand? <laughs> no, no, nobody's seen a germ. Okay, now wait a minute. You guys are believing in stuff that you can't see, right? Isn't that a little weird? Why would you believe in these germs that you can't see? Well, it's because you have seen the effect about them. Um, and, and you know that if we're not careful about germs, we're going to get sick. And maybe more than get sick, maybe die. I know I've definitely had some uh, intestinal bugs and I thought I was going to die. <clears throat> so we're all careful about them. We even insist that those around us are careful about them. Have you ever seen somebody that was just doing stuff that you knew was unsanitary? I mean, was did you go did you explain the way more perfectly unto them? Now, we don't have time to go into it this morning, but uh, I looked here on uh, Wikipedia and I got some articles here you might want to look up. There was this guy named uh, uh, Leeuwenhoek. He was a Dutchman in the 1600s. And he's the guy that first invented a microscope capable of seeing germs. Not the inventor of the microscope, but the first one that actually was able to see germs. And he became a celebrity in the 1600s. And you can read all about him here. So we owe a, a debt of gratitude to him. <clears throat> and then in the 1800s, uh, is is when the germ theory of disease actually was figured out. And so you can read about that as well. And then the, there's another article here by a gal named Typhoid Mary. Now this one you will really enjoy. Typhoid Mary was a cook and a, uh, a laundry woman in this country in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. And she did not believe in the germ theory of disease. Worse than that, she didn't believe in washing her hands. Really didn't believe in it. Had a, had a positive predilection against it. Unfortunately, she was also a carrier of typhoid. And so as she would go to wealthy families and cook their food, about three weeks after she would get there, typhoid would break out. Really. And, of course, many, many people at this point didn't believe in the germ theory of disease. Um, but as soon as that would happen, then she would find a different job. And uh, she lived from family to family for, for many years, New York City, Philadelphia. Um, the, the, there were at least 50 people infected, uh, at least three of whom died over the course of her career as a cook. Uh, Maybe many more than that. Nobody really knows uh, because the, the the statistics are not there. When they they finally caught up with her and they insisted on getting a specimen, um, well, it would it would just uh, you can read the article. They uh, they finally figured out it was her that was doing it that she was a typhoid carrier and was going to all these cities. And they, they actually quarantined her on an island in the East River. 
What else would you do? There was no cure. They didn't have the antibiotics. She wouldn't wash her hands. I mean, she was a danger to everyone she was around. So we believe in bugs and we can't see them. So when we're talking about what is really true before God and we can't see God, actually those unseen things can have a bigger impact on us than the things that we see. So the unseen reality around us is very, very real. We've looked at the context in which the book was written. We've looked at the model that Paul used to help us understand. Now let's go on to Paul's point. Why did he write this? What effect did he want to have on us? The verse in question is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's break this down. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, it means to be made happy, to be joyful, satisfied, fulfilled. Who wouldn't want to be blessed? This is not some vague spiritual idea that doesn't have real impact. How do you like life when you are blessed, when you are happy, joyful, satisfied, and fulfilled? How do you like life when you are unhappy, unjoyful, unsatisfied, unfulfilled? This is a big deal. What does every spiritual blessing mean? Well, every is pretty all-inclusive. <laughs> the uh, you know just which part of every don't you understand <clears throat> what's left out of every nothing what does spiritual mean okay it doesn't mean the opposite of physical that's an ancient Greek concept that the spiritual and the physical were opposed and never joined that's not at all the concept of the Bible the concept of the Bible is that spiritual is the ultimate reality and pervades everything. The, the physical is just a subset of the physical, of the spiritual. <clears throat> For Paul, spiritual meant the culmination and the fulfillment of everything. In other words, he meant ultimate reality. So every spiritual blessing means all means and methods of gaining happiness, joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. It means all the best Christmases, the most spectacular birthdays, the most awesome presents are only a pale and faded reflection of what God has already given us. Part of the point of what Paul is saying here is that this is already our possession. And, uh, and that he has given this to us. So, anybody here's life always characterized by joy, happiness, satisfaction, and fulfillment? That's your daily experience most days, all day? Yeah. What is the problem here? If we've been giving it, why aren't we feeling it? 
So why aren't we always filled with joy and fulfillment? Could it be that we are looking up at the end of that hill on the race and thinking we will never make it? How would our life change if we started thinking that we have all we need, that we are approaching the finish line, and that every blessing is just over that hill? In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, the verses that follow 1-3, Paul lists the things that we've been granted. And I'll go through some of these, and it will just be a a quick overview. Um, I would encourage you to look it up and meditate on it. In verse 4, he says that we are chosen to be holy and blameless. You know, as a new believer, I felt that God loved the world, so he had to take me too. You know, but that was all wrong. The truth is that he knew and he knows that in myself, I'm the bottom of the barrel. That we all are. <clears throat> I don't understand that. No, he, excuse me. <laughs> I um, slipped to the wrong paragraph there. But to convince me that he really does want me, he chose to pay top dollar for me. When he sent Jesus to redeem us, he paid the highest price possible. Think about that. You go in the store and you say, oh boy, would you mind if I paid a little extra? (laughs) But I bet you have probably thought about getting a present for that certain someone. And typically this happens to guys when they go out and buy that engagement ring. And they're looking at at uh, okay, yeah, that, this will do the job. She's going to say yes, and I don't have to go spend a, a million bucks here. Oh, but you know, a few more hundred, that would really say the right thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, let's spend a little more. And so when we really want to communicate love, we are willing to spend more. What can I say? God paid top dollar for us. I don't understand that, and I'm not sure I ever will. But I cannot argue with Jesus going to the cross. We were chosen. We didn't qualify. But he chose us. What's the consequence? If you never qualified, how can you disqualify yourself? (laughs) I mean, this, this is an amazing thing that God chose us. And what he chose us for is to be holy and blameless. Boy, that's getting an A-plus on the test. That's getting the perfect score. And it's the guy doing the grading that says that you are holy and blameless. That's phenomenal. He not only wants you and me, but he's determined that we will be holy and blameless. He is working in us to produce perfection. Now, it's really good that God is omnipotent at this point. Because producing perfection in us is going to take a lot of work. It's also good that he's pretty perseverant. He's chosen us to be absolutely perfect. We are the rebels that Jesus had to die for. I would be more than content, content to escape his just wrath. 
but he is not content with anything less than the best it can be. That's our destiny. Does that help you power up that last hill? From here, it only gets better. That's incredible. So he's chosen us to be holy and blameless. In verse 5, he's predestined us to be adopted as sons. The Lord already allocated a place for us. And that place is adoption as sons. In the Roman world, the adopted son was actually the heir. The adopted son could be placed ahead of anybody. The adopted son was the one that the father really wanted. And what Paul is saying is, okay, you're the one that the Lord really wanted. Verse 6, freely given grace. We have his favor. We didn't earn it. We can't lose it. What does it matter what others think of you when the Lord of creation holds you in the highest regard? What does it matter what others think? Verse 7, redemption through his blood. The picture here is that of a slave being purchased in the marketplace to be set free. The Lord knows all the bad stuff about us, and it didn't stop him. He died that we might live. How can we imagine that anything, that he would allow anything to come between us? I'll uh, let you uh, look at the rest of those on your own. You can see how these things that God is doing in us are going to change us radically. These blessings that he has given us in the heavenlies are going to change us. Now, let me ask this. If you truly have every blessing, what does that do to the contentions that develop between people? There's no way to get ahead. You're already chosen as a son. There's no way to put somebody else down. I mean, it resolves all of that. What does it do in terms of our our contention with God, our separation from God? It erases it. It obliterates us. What does it do in terms of our separation and alienation from ourselves? Well, if the Lord of the universe accepts you as you are and is making you holy and perfect, how can you not be content with that? That's taking all the things you don't like about yourself and turning every one of them into a shining star. Well, we've looked at the context. We've looked at the setting for this letter to the Ephesians. We've talked about the model that Paul uses to communicate. And finally, we've looked at his point, the effect that Paul wanted to have on us. Divisions affect all people everywhere. We're alienated from God, from others, from ourselves. Jesus came to fix all of this. God's master plan is to heal these divisions and to draw us all close through the shed blood of his son. These things have already happened. And will we look down in despair at the mess around and within us? Or will we fix our eyes in the heavenlies and live in the light of what's really true?
Let's pray. Father, we pray that that you would continue your gracious work in us, um, molding us, forming us into your image. Father, thank you that you have already given us every blessing in the heavenlies. Help us to fix our eyes on what you are doing as, as you work in us to change us into your image. And we pray in your son's name. Amen. This morning we're going to uh, remember the Lord's death. <clears throat> I have to get the passage out here. All these things that the, the Christ has given us in the heavenlies. And we'll be talking about more about that in the next few weeks. All these things that the, the Lord provided for us didn't come cheaply. It, it cost the Lord. And remembering his grace, remembering what Jesus did for us and why we, he did it is absolutely key for us. There's no magic in communion. It, uh, uh, having the, the elements of communion doesn't uh, somehow gain us brownie points with God. What it is is another way that we can focus on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and on what God did for us. So the important thing that's going to happen this morning is that you come before the Lord and remember what he did for you. And then that is uh, the way this is designed, of course, is then, then all week, every day, all day, you continue to remember the Lord and what he did for us. So Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, uh, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what we're going to do is we're going to have each row file out to the side here and come and, and pick up some uh, unleavened, or no, gluten-free bread. Yeah, it's not unleavened. It's gluten-free. And a cup and circle back to your seats here. And, and then we'll all take them together once everybody's got them. So, Gene, if you'd start out for us. <clears throat> 